Oh, there. All right. So here's a fun fact that you might not know about me. So far in my life, I've lost and eventually regained at least 20 kilograms four times in my life. And now, unfortunately, it seems like it's time for a fifth without the regaining ideally, right? But I've always been an active person, like, so working out regularly, exercising, that wasn't never the problem. But at the same time, if you know me, love to eat. Love to eat. So the reason why I could never keep the weight off is because I keep on making these compromises, right? I justify myself having that extra piece of chicken, that extra cookie, that extra glass of beer, which yes, beer is allowed, guys, just so we're clear. Delusionally believing that I can always just burn it off later. However, though, occasionally, you know, it might be fun to to be a little indulgent, the accumulation of these decisions that normalizes overeating and a tolerant attitude towards eating poorly actually negates whatever gains I can make by working out as hard as I can. Because as I'm getting older, I'm learning more and more that it's really true that you cannot out-train a bad diet. But it's only when things start getting out of hand, like right now, and I'm pretty unhealthy and unable to exercise as much as I want to, am I filled with regret finally putting in the attention needed to correct the situation, right? Which ends up being way more work than what I should have done to not get myself here in the first place. Now, I'm not trying to body shame any of you in any way, okay? But I find this to be such a great analogy for the Christian life. If we've grown up as a Christian or have been Christians for a long time, we might have already gotten used to the routines of being Christian. We're used to doing Christian stuff like going to church, praying, serving or something. And we might even be learning and reading our Bibles regularly. We might know a ton about the Bible. However, as we continue today on our series on the seven uh, churches in the book of Revelation, we will learn that these good works should not lull us into this false sense of security. Because we will see that the inputs, the stuff that we consume as Christians in our church can be really dangerous for both us and our community if they go unchecked, right? So let us read this stern warning to the church in Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18 and following. Okay, this is the Word of God. And the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation 
unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your work. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you another burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. Thus says the Lord. Friends, although the images and metaphors that we found in our text today is a little foreign to us, this morning I hope to show that at heart, what this text aims to do is to push us to never neglect being vigilant about protecting the purity and sanctity of the church, specifically by rooting out idolatry, an intolerable plague that the Bible considers to be poisonous to God's people. And I think this text encourages us to meditate on at least three realities that can help us do that. So, our three points today. We will not tolerate idols when we see, one, how harmful idolatry is, two, how God responds to idolatry, and three, how no idol can rival God's gift. How harmful it is, how God responds to it, and how it cannot rival God's gift. Right? Let's get straight in. Point one, we will not tolerate idols when we understand how harmful idolatry is. So to get the full picture of what John is trying to say here, we probably need to get uh, a lot clearer about what ancient Thyatira was like, right? So the city was located in modern-day Turkey, and in ancient times, this wasn't really a prominent city like the other ones mentioned in Revelation. But what is known about this city is that it was an industrial city, a hub for manufacturing, known to produce some high-quality goods like bronze or textiles, maybe like chikarang now, I guess, right? But if you remember, the first convert to Christianity in Europe in the book of Acts was Lydia, who was from Thyatira, and she was known as a seller of precious purple dye. So this was a working city, right, full of commerce, craftsmen, and professionals, and back then, how it works is that to be a craftsman or a manufacturer, you would normally join some kind of guild or association. But back then, these guilds were not, were not like just companies or unions as you would think of, where it's just about your job, right? But they were literally also cults, wherein there would be this patron or matron deity of that guild and the members of this guild would be expected to participate in the worship of this deity, which would normally involve some kind of sacred feasts and ritual prostitution, right? which was a normal thing back then, which sounds totally bizarre to us. But this was what the church had to deal with on a daily basis. right? It was so normalized that participating in these kinds of practices seemed to most people like just part of the job. right? Maybe an equivalent would be almost like going out for drinks with your colleagues and your boss after work. 
Except the difference is there is no way to participate in this in a moderate and sanctified way. So the professionals in the church in Thyatira would always have to constantly deal with these pressures to participate in these sinful, lustful, and idolatrous practices, both fighting off their own desire to gratify their own lusts, as well as risk social and economic exclusion if they did not participate in this worship of an idol. So they're facing a really tough situation. And the Lord Himself acknowledges that the church in Thyatira has done relatively well in some respects, right? Verse 19 says that God acknowledges their love, service, faith, and patience, endurance there. So they have good theology. They do good works. They're producing some really good Christian stuff. But even then, and even actually, it says that their latter works exceed the first. So it seems like they're even growing. And Jesus is saying here, that's great. But he, do, he doesn't minimize at all the good that they have produced. But he does warn them that they have a problem that's serious. That they have not demonstrated the appropriate urgency to solve. And John here uses a well-known figure in the Old Testament to illustrate the kind of problem this is. Verse 20, right? The story of Jezebel. So John talks about the presence of this prophetess who he calls Jezebel and uh, there are, who are following or leading followers of Jesus astray into sexual immorality and idolatry. So most commentators here pretty much agree that the person's name is probably not actually Jezebel, nor is it necessarily one single person. Rather, it's more likely here that John is referring to some kind of deviant, heretical sect that's possibly led by a woman. But what is certain here is that the activities of this group is likened to the story of Jezebel, which we can read in 1 Kings chapter 16 and following. So, just to refresh you guys, Jezebel was this famously wicked wife of Ahab, king of Israel, and what she is famous for was instituting the worship of Baal, this false Mesopotamian God on a nationwide scale. In other words, Jezebel is considered to be the mother of all false prophets, the queen of idolaters. Her name to the Jews is somewhat similar to what Hitler's name is to us, just the epitome of evil, deceit, and falsehood. So what was going on then is most likely that this group that was operating in the church was advocating uh, being comfortable and normalizing being in these idolatrous situations and even participating in them, even seeing value in it, believing that it can help them learn what they call the deep things of Satan that you can see in verse 24, which somehow is supposed to be a good thing. And God is rebuking sternly this church for tolerating this dangerous group and teaching for not warning their own people of the danger it possesses and letting those in the church just be led astray. And interestingly also, just go, going back to the story of Jezebel, when Jezebel influenced Ahab to worship Baal, the vocabulary that is used in the Bible to describe what Jezebel did to Ahab is also of sexual immorality. As in when Ahab worshiped Baal, in the eyes of God... 
What he did was commit adultery. To God, idolatry is adultery. So it's no wonder in verses 20 to 22, uh, 20 to 22, John describes what this Jezebel group is doing is seducing the church into committing adultery. Because here's the point, right, that the Bible makes here and in, in a ton of other places. That the sin of idolatry, no matter what form it takes, no matter how harmless it seems, no matter how culturally acceptable it is, is completely despicable to God. God sees it like a wife witnessing a husband cheating over and over again, unbearably painful and overwhelmingly infuriating. My wife right now is plotting her revenge if I ever did such a thing. So if I ever disappear mysteriously, you know what happened, and I acknowledge that I fully deserve it. But it's no wonder, by the way, that the one instance in the Bible where it's absolutely clear that divorce is warranted is in adultery. Because the betrayal of infidelity cuts so deeply in the human heart that God's understand that having to live with this and forgiving this person can be impossibly hard. It's not something that someone can just get over even after trying as hard as humanly possible. So even God is not going to force us to go through that pain, and He graciously gave us the concession of divorce, which actually nullifies the most fundamental, original human relationship. Think about that. But this is what I want each of us to really ingrain in our hearts this morning, that we break God's heart because of our adulterous ways on a daily basis. Because as you may heard here in CCC, that idolatry is not merely talking about bowing down to worship some other god, but at heart, in its most basic form, idolatry comes from the tendency of the human heart to look for in created things what God has actually promised to give us and what only God Himself can give us. It's seeking these counterfeits, these replacements for God, as Tim Keller puts it. And it can be anything, anything that captures our hearts and imaginations more than God, that we desire more than Him, that feels more essential to our lives, and that if we were to lose it, our lives would not seem like it's worth living. So I invite us, friends, here to search our hearts. Is there anything? in this world that we value more than God? Is there anything or anyone that we would sin for? Is it some relationship? Is it the approval and admiration of some people or some position of, or power? Is it simply money? I would actually be shocked if each of us didn't find something. Like, I myself am frequently tempted to idolize something as trivial as my convenience and I'm willing to sin just to avoid complication. Because not only the culture normalizes and encourages worshiping idols, but it is also indeed true what Calvin famously said, that the human heart is a factory of idols, constantly creating counterfeits for God. Hence, it is imperative, friends. If we ever want to truly be free from our idols, 
we actually want to experience being on good terms with God, that we have the appropriate attitude and perspective towards idolatry. We can see it for what it really is, cheating on God. Idolatry is never innocent. Nothing is more offensive to God than this. And He will rightly not just let this slide. Just point two, how God responds to idolatry. Now, I totally understand if what God, what Jesus said He will do in verses 21-23 makes a lot of us quite uncomfortable, right? It could be really hard to reconcile what Jesus said He's going to do to the Jezebel followers with the idea that He is also all-loving and capable of forgiving pretty much anything, which is true, right? I'm not saying He's not all-loving. But at the same time, that is not the full story. And we must also never take for granted that Jesus is also just and holy. He is the king of creation, the judge of all the earth. And these are the lenses through which we must see Jesus' words in these verses. Look how Jesus describes himself in the beginning of our text in verse 18. He says that he is the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, who has feet like burnished bronze. Okay, now I know this sounds like such a bizarre thing to us modern readers, but it would make a lot more sense back then because what this image is trying to communicate is Jesus' transcendent glory over and above all the idols of Thyatira and His purifying power. Jesus refers to Himself here in such exalted terms as the true Son of God. And this language of the Son of God with fiery eyes and bronze feet are echoes of the Old Testament, specifically Psalm 2 and Daniel 7, passages that describe that the one who will exercise the authority of the Ancient of Days as the righteous judge for the all of the ungodly nations. And even more interestingly, the word here for burnished bronze is actually a pretty unique word in the Greek. It's not the normal word for bronze. And the scholarly uh, consensus here, what theologians think, is that this word actually refers to a specific type of bronze that's produced in Thyatira. And the Lord is wearing this bronze on His feet, communicating that He is Lord over Thyatira too emphasizing clearly and boldly to this church that the preeminence and authority that Christ has in heaven and in earth is absolute and unrivaled. So John's logic here is that because Jesus is the highest power, who is Lord over this city too, and because idolatry is such an affront to Him, it's actually proper and fitting for Him to act so severely. But I get it, guys. Like, God sending illness, throwing tribulation, right? Striking children dead, as verse 22 and 23 says, that's intense. It's disturbing and, and truly horrifying to think about. And this is far from the only place in the Bible where God is described to be doing these violent things. And I would love to have an extended discussion with you or even a whole Bible study for those of you who are that interested, about the difficult passages like these that teaches us about divine violence because we can't really do 
justice to the complexity of the issue in the short time we have this morning. But let me just point out like one layer of this discussion. In that, if you actually go online and look up a concordance and look at each time in the Bible God said that He will enforce justice through violence, like 80% of the time, God isn't the immediate perpetrator, right? Very rarely do we see God do something equivalent like zapping someone from heaven with lightning. Rather, most of the time, what we have is a situation where God hands, human, hands humanity over to the chaos and sin and the consequences thereof of what they have chosen for themselves, right? So a huge example of this is how God lets Babylon attack and destroy completely Israel and send His people into exile. However, in that occasion, God takes responsibility for that. Not that God is guilty, but He does claim that this destruction is His own action and initiative, as if He did it Himself. Though in real time, who did it were the Babylonians. See what I'm saying? The biblical author here, the biblical authors do not really distinguish between natural consequence and active punishment. They are all the same thing. So in the case of Thyatira here, when God says that He will enforce justice upon them, he was not doing anything outside of their jurisdiction or anything exceptionally cruel. As with every sinner will ultimately receive judgment, we will get exactly what is coming to us. We choose for ourselves to go down this path of destruction, and when this judgment eventually comes, we will have no excuse. Because, as verse 21 tells us, God had already given us time to repent as He did to the church in Thyatira. God has already exercised patience. He has already delayed the destruction that we deserve. But we, as they did, often mock God by ignoring Him. We take His patience for granted, and we think that God's mercy is His permission. And the window, friends, while we have this opportunity now, the window of opportunity for repentance is not eternal. It is indeed closing. Because indeed, although God is truly so slow to anger, gracious and merciful, and very quick to forgive, He will not, He cannot, it is impossible for Him to leave the guilty unpunished. Because, as verse 23 reminds us, that it will ultimately be proven that He is a God who searches the mind and heart, and He will give each of us according to our work. Startling, isn't it? Now, I hope that the application from this is that you don't go home to look at the struggles and the problems you're going through and try to figure out how you've angered God to get ourselves in this situation, right? The idea here is not to panic about God's judgment for the sins, which we are all admittedly still struggling with. Like, God isn't pointing a gun to us and saying, repent or else. Rather, the goal here is to sober up 
right, and be clear about our position, to take a good, hard look at ourselves and identify the ways in which we have listened to the voice of Jezebel and made compromises with sin, to expose the idols of our hearts, understanding that this idol is both grieving God and killing us, realizing that God actually gives everyone a chance to do what is right, which means right now, while we are still breathing, while you can hear these words, there is still a chance to repent. This is your invitation. This is our invitation to renounce our idols, to come back to Him. There is still patience from God right now, yet. And we best not grow callous for this chance, nor take it for granted. Because once we stop caring and we begin to get comfortable with our sin, we will not be prepared for what's going to happen on the day when God will finally hold us accountable for what we have chosen and hand us over to the destruction that we've chosen for ourselves. Look, friends, we are all struggling with sin, right? I am. But there is a world of difference between an active struggle and a passive, willing compromise. Remember, God discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart. He knows if we're actually making an effort to grow in faithfulness or are we giving up. But at the same time, God knows our frame. He knows that we are dust and we have limitations. And He knows that this battle against the idol of our culture, the idol of our hearts, is uphill and it is long. So what this text is doing it is encouraging us to keep going, to make those painful, painstaking inches forward and to progress. Because it is not only dangerous for us to stay still and stagnant, but also we must remember that our efforts will never be in vain, for there is a, war, a reward waiting for us by God, which is point three. We will not tolerate idols when we understand how no idol can rival God. So, what is the instruction of the king of creation to this church that really has done some good things and have grown in some ways? Verse 25, hold fast to what you have till I come. Keep doing what's been working. Keep on growing in your love, service, faith, and endurance. And do so knowing, verse 24, that I do not lay upon you another burden. In other words, don't worry about learning some hidden supernatural knowledge. Go back to the basics, back to the spiritual disciplines that has gotten us this far in our walk of faith, knowing that this is actually what's going to get us through to the end. Because that's the core message of idolatry, isn't it? Is the message of Satan in the Garden of Eden that somehow simple obedience to the Word of God isn't enough. That somehow if we just obey God, He's still going to be holding out on us. 
So we got to do something, learn something, have something to supplement for that which you're not going to get from God. But God here is inviting us to trust Him. Because, as with many things in life, adding to it actually ruins it. So with our faith, simple, childlike obedience is the way to go. The way to heaven is straight, but is indeed narrow. However, if we do faithfully remain on this path, simple it may be, but easy it is certainly not. If we endure to the end, meaning until death, or if it so happens that we're lucky enough to still be alive when Jesus comes back, Jesus will share with us the authority and dominion that he, God has given him over all nations. That's what verses 26 and 27 is about. The text is using some interesting imagery from Psalm 2 again here. He says that the one who is faithful unto death, the one who conquers, he will be given the authority over all nations. And how this conqueror uses authority is twofold here. It says he will protect his people and he will enforce justice upon his enemies. Most translations, like in your printout, says that he will rule with a rod of iron because that's what Psalm 2 says. But in the Greek here that John uses, the word there literally is to shepherd. He will shepherd and care for his people with a rod of iron. But this iron staff that is used to protect the king's subject is at the same time the instrument of judgment that will break those who are rebelling over his rule. But we need to realize this first, right, that the one who is actually given this authority by God the Father was not us, right? The text is clear about that. But it is the risen Christ who is speaking to us on this text. He was the one who was faithful no matter what kind of temptation or persecution he faced. He was the only one who was able to perfectly be obedient to the end to God's will, even humbling himself to the most brutal and humiliating death a human could suffer. So Jesus is the original conqueror. But the message of the gospel is this. As Jesus now, being raised, rules over all nations, he graciously shares this ruling authority with us. We get to partner with God as He rules the world. Meaning that we don't only enjoy the protection of this divine King, not only can we rest in knowing that every injustice, every harm that we have suffered will be justly dealt with by our King. Nobody is getting away with anything. But also, now we, if we have trusted in Jesus, we get to be the instruments of His protection and justice. Jesus invites us to participate in this work of protecting our Christian family and upholding the justice He wants to enforce in the world, but not to do it violently or with a heavy hand, but to do what Jesus did to confront and defeat the rebellion of this world by performing the ultimate act of self-giving love through letting himself be broken on the cross to give us all an opportunity to repent 
and be reconciled to him. And it is through embracing this self-sacrificial, other-centered ethic of Christ faithfully without compromise, then we will be given the ultimate gift, Christ himself, which verse 28 calls the morning star. And Revelation 22 later identifies specifically Jesus as this morning star. And the morning star is this biblical image that refers to the end of the age of darkness, right? right? Like after night is over, the first thing that you see is the morning star. It signifies that the darkness of night is over, and indeed, the dawn of new creation is already upon us. You see, the resurrected Christ is called by the New Testament as the firstborn of new creation, that he is the one who ushers in God's eternal rule of light and signifies the defeat of sin. So in our text, tells us that we who are faithful, we who have trusted in Christ, will be given the morning star. What it is doing, it is inviting us to now live in this new creation reality where our master is no longer sin and Jesus is king. That now we are truly no longer under the power of the idols of this world, but on the contrary, we in Christ has been given power over these idols. So let us, friends, exercise this authority that Jesus gives to us by protecting one another, loving, serving, and enduring one another in faith, showing to the world that whom the Son sets free is free indeed, and how liberating living for God and free from idols actually is. And ultimately, we have a choice set before us. Either we can live in fear of judgment, being tossed around by the pull of the idols of this culture, or we can reign with Christ, having absolute assurance of His divine protection, being able to rest in the promises that we will be rewarded if we worship Him and Him alone. So if any of us here, dare to claim that we follow Jesus and that we are Christians, if we truly do believe right now that Jesus is the one in charge, the message for us today here is that God is just and holy. Therefore, let us remove as far as possible any kind of influence that are making us consider, even look in the direction of these worthless idols that grieve God. And let us ground ourselves in the promises of God by surrounding ourselves with influences and communities that help us live in this reality that Jesus is King. Meaning that we should be watchful about who we allow to influence our lives. There's this wonderful children's song, right? It says, be careful little feet where you go, be careful little eyes where you see, be careful little hands, what you do, because our Father above is watching in love. We need to have a zero tolerance policy with regards to anything or anyone that might encourage us to even consider idolatry. Because these influences are indeed everywhere. And these seemingly innocent 
decisions, these compromises that we make that makes us more comfortable with these idols are going to add up. And before we know it, we're going to be in too deep, and getting out is going to be much more painful and much more costly than we expect and are actually willing to pay. But for those of us here who are not yet following Jesus, and you're still living in fear of judgment, if the Holy Spirit right now is exposing to you the idols of your heart, and you know that right now your relationship with the ruler of heaven and earth is broken, the good news today for you is that God is patient and He is willing to forgive. That right now, right this moment, He is giving you a chance to repent. So my prayer for you is to take this opportunity by trusting God. Renounce your idols, accept Jesus as Lord, and his sacrifice on the cross will have paid for your sins too. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we cannot even begin to understand the depths of your mercy. You see completely how ugly our sins are. Father, we acknowledge that we so easily succumb to the idols of this world, that our hearts have been adulterous, and we have taken your grace for granted. I pray, Father, for those of us here who acknowledge that we have taken you for granted, that you would convict us deeply of our sin and let us never sit comfortably when we have made these compromises. Make us run back to you, Lord, that we may embrace the grace that you have offered to us freely, that we may enjoy the freedom that is truly available for us. And for those of us here, Lord, who have not rectified the relationship with you, who are still worshiping of the idols of this world, I pray that you make it clear to us all that these idols are powerless and worthless, so that we may look to you hold fast to you, that we may lay our trophies down and cling to you, and that we may see how indeed good and sweet it is to be in your graces. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.